Well then, with a view to the life of God, let's uh, turn to Revelation 7 again. And uh, particularly verse 9. We'll take in the whole of the passage, or we'll try to, as we read it, but <coughs> gathering your thoughts around verse 9, where the Apostle John sees a great multitude which no one could number. And uh, we'll strive to look with him at this great multitude. Now, <coughs> you'll remember from the morning that the passage here consists of two visions. In the first vision, verses 1 to 8, we see the Church of God as the new Israel of God. And she is kept uh, through every judgment that God sends upon the earth, including here the last general final judgment. God seals his people and delivers them. Tonight we turn to the second vision, this one from verse 9 to verse 17, where again we see the Church of God. This time she has been delivered into her glory, out of tribulation, now into her glory, and she is, as the passage emphasizes, rejoicing constantly before God in heaven. And uh, now, uh, personally, I've never actually preached on these verses, and the reason for that is because I've always found them so sublime, really. They communicate, I feel, in a way, all that you need to know, and it's very difficult to really open them out in any way. And strangely enough, the, the first commentator I really consulted on it, a very godly man, uh, in America in the late 19th century, just happened to say that words like this are only enfeebled by our comments upon them. And I was glad he said that, because that's exactly uh, the way I've always felt about them, that words like this are only enfeebled by our comments upon them. But um, that brought to mind something that Augustine said when he was speaking of the Trinity and trying in his own way to explain how there were three persons sharing one common divine nature. And he was conscious of uh, his own inability to do it, and he said, we speak these things not in order to thoroughly explain, but because we cannot be silent. And uh, there is so much truth in that, and that is very much how I feel myself. These things do need to be brought up and to be opened as much as we can with God's help and may bless that uh, to us but when we're finished go back to the passage perhaps sometime even before you go to bed and read it yourself just yourself and the Lord now then with God's help let's look first of all at who these people are secondly where they came from third how they appear fourth where they are, and fifth, what they do. Who they are, where they come from, how they appear, where they are, and 
what they do. So, first of all, who these people are. Obviously, from verse 9, they are a mixed gathering. Now, I don't mean that in any negative or derogatory sense, but just in a cosmopolitan sense. There is no division of race here, no division of nationality, no division of privilege or economics or politics, no division of gender. All are together, all kinds of sinners, they are saved by grace. All nations, tribes or clans, peoples, tongues, that's languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's a reminder to us that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has appeared to all men. Now, of course, the gathering that we saw some time back, and we touched on this morning in chapter 6 as well, the gathering of the wicked that are left upon the earth when the Lord's people are taken away, that's a mixed gathering in the same way too. The rich and the powerful there, as well as the slaves and the poor. But so is the church. And I suppose there's a special emphasis here on the fact that the new Israel of God, the Church of Christ, consists both of Jew and Gentile. As we saw recently at our prayer meetings, the wall of partition between Jew and Gentile has thoroughly come down. And they all constitute one living temple in which God dwells and the voice of his praise is constantly raised. Even that is true of the church here upon the earth. The middle wall of partition that Paul speaks about is just a reference to the fact that in the temple, in the Old Testament, Gentiles could come in so far and no further. The reference here is to the fact that that wall is gone and all the privileges are equally shared by Jews and by Gentiles. So this people is a mixed gathering from the four corners of the earth. And as well as being a mixed gathering, you'll notice too just in the passing that it is an innumerable gathering. It is a great multitude which no one could number. Now, of course, that excludes God. It is an absurd idea to say that they are innumerable to God. In fact, we saw this morning how God knows exactly who constitute this multitude. He has elected them from the foundation of the world. He has called them in time, and not one of those shall be lost. There are plenty privileged people who will be missing, but not one of his elect shall be lost. It's it's a nonsense, of course, to think that he who named the stars called them into being and gave them a name is someone who doesn't know the number of this multitude. The point here that John makes is simply uh, that it is a multitude that he can't number himself, and neither, for that matter, can any other person. It is so vast. In the first vision in chapter 7, which we saw in the morning, uh, when we have a vision of the church upon the earth, uh, John hears the number, the 144,000. And we saw what that meant. But you'll remember that he didn't see the church. Uh, All he saw were the four angels holding the winds of judgment at the four corners of the earth. He doesn't see the multitude, but he's told that there are 144,000 people to be sealed, 
preserved, kept, and delivered. Here he sees a multitude. They stretch back to the north and the south and the east and the west as far as the eye can see. It is impossible, he says, for anyone to number them. And it's wonderful to think of such a gathering when the church at last is not partly invisible anymore, but at last the whole church is visible. They are all together in one place at one time. The old are there who died old. The young are there who died young. The children who were slaughtered in the womb, they are there too. Those who died in their infancy, they are there too. From Abel, the first man killed on this earth, the first to die, through to Abraham, through to David, through to Paul, through to the very last saint to enter. When the Lord Jesus Christ raises the dead and those who are living, that last person into glory carrying this seal, well, all of them constitute this vast number which is impossible for any person to compute. That is the multitude. It's a great vision. And we can't forget that John saw it. And sometimes when I think of that, I, I can't help but always go back to the beginning of the book of the Revelation where John the Apostle, in his old age, the last surviving apostle, it's not long after uh, Peter and Paul were killed, uh, he's on his own, he's exiled in Patmos, and he's worshipping on the Lord's day just like we are ourselves. And little did he realise that before the day was over, his mind would be filled with visions of this kind and that he would have an encounter with the risen Lord. He sees a vision of the glorious saints in heaven. So that's who they are. Second, how they came or where they came from. And I don't mean by that the original nations or people groups or clans or tribes. I mean the process by which they came to heaven. Which, after all, is the question that the elder asks in verse 13. Now, this is an elder um, who is around the throne of God. I'm not going to go down every avenue. One of the elders answered and said, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? Now, John simply says, Sir, you know. In other words... You ask me, but you know I don't know. You ask me to see if I will ask you. That's sometimes the way that God works. And so John is effectively putting the question back. And he says to me, well, these are the ones. Now notice, here's where they've come from. These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. That is a great difficulty or a great distress. Now, <clears throat> you can consider that uh, tribulation or distress either particularly or generally. Sometimes the Bible speaks of particular tribulations that the people of God go through. And certainly just before the last judgment we are told that Satan is let loose again on the earth for a time. And uh, when he is, of course, whenever he's let loose he wreaks havoc. There are degrees to which Satan is let loose, but we certainly get the impression from the scriptures that the time before the end is a special time of loosening. There is a certain point 
through world history in which he is relatively chained or bound. He's not able to enslave the nations in darkness as he always was. For example, the days of the great missionary outreach in the history of the world brings before us a time when Satan is losing his hold on several nations. But there is a let loose period before the end of the world. That just happens before these death throes begin, when the angels are just ready uh, to let go of the winds of God's judgment. And uh, we saw some uh, this morning. Um, We saw periods of tribulation in Jerusalem's life, uh, when she was first raised to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar. These were called days of tribulation. Then shortly after this book of Revelation was written, Jerusalem was raised to the ground a second time and the temple destroyed. These, Jesus calls, days of great tribulation. And then, nearing the end of the world, a period of great tribulation. But although that's so, the Bible also speaks of the Christian's life in this world as in general, a time of trial and tribulation throughout the whole gospel era. That ties in really with what we were looking at uh, last week because we can't forget that the devil has come down to us after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He's come down to this world having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And because of that, there are seasons when we become acutely aware of his work. Now, Paul uh, warns Timothy about that. And when Paul warns Timothy about that, he's effectively warning us too. Because that pastoral letter written to Timothy, who was a young minister in Ephesus, that pastoral letter, letter was designed to have a place in the Bible which is always going to communicate to us. And one thing he says to Timothy is this. He says, know this. He's warning him about people who are opposing him. And, and, and here comes a warning that sometimes the opposition will be really intense. Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Perilous seasons. Seasons of real tribulation and difficulty. This is how he describes them. And I think I referenced this a couple of weeks ago. When you read this, you realize you're in the middle of one. For men will become lovers of themselves. So there's a selfishness and a narcissism which characterizes the Western world. Men will become lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Covetousness is really rife. Boasters and proud. They will become blasphemers. Disobedient to parents, which is a a remarkable characteristic of our generation serious disobedience to parental authority, unthankful people, need I say more, unholy, unloving, slanderers, they just say anything, slander anybody, lacking self-control, brutal, brutality comes back, despisers of good, headstrong, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And even those who have any kind of religion were told of them that they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. 
seasons like that. These seasons will come and these seasons will go. But there will be a pronounced season like that before the last and final judgment of God. And um, in the seven letters to the seven churches, I don't want to overburden our minds, but the book of the Revelation, you'll remember, begins with John writing, on behalf of Christ, seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And he tells them all that there's a, a time of tribulation coming. Now, the, the time that he's speaking of there is actually the first serious Roman um, persecution. And he tells one of the churches, it's the church in Philadelphia, he tells her this, uh, because you have kept my command to persevere, that's because the persecution has actually begun, but God notices that, that you're persevering, you're keeping going, and because you've kept that command, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation which shall come upon the whole world to test those who are dwelling on the earth. That's what these tribulations do. They test us. Uh, when, when that kind of life begins to abound around us, tests us all, what we're made of, who we're following, what kind of God we have, what kind of faith we have, what kind of religion we have. So he says, hold fast what you have, that no one takes your crown. And the one who overcomes, I'll come back to this word later, the one who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in my God's temple, and he shall go out no more. The hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole world. <clears throat> but whenever we think of the word tribulation, well, whenever I do anyway, Perhaps you do too. I tend to think of what Christ said to the disciples on the very last night he was with them in the upper room where he spoke such uh, beautiful, powerful and spiritual words to them and more or less closed them by saying that in this world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And of course in my overcoming, you will overcome too. But, but in this world, he says, you shall have tribulation. And you notice that these, or this multitude, this vast assembly of people, have come through all their tribulations. Where did they come from? John said, you know, and the elder said, they have come out of the great tribulation. They've left them behind and uh, as we'll see a little later on, God has wiped away every tear from their eyes. It's a wonderful thing. We have trials in this life, friends, and I mean everybody does in one way or another but the Christian's trials are more acute simply because the devil puts something in the mix all the time. He puts something in the mix to make it difficult, to make it hard but it's a lovely thought to think that the day will come when your trials are over. Some people say that about the death. <coughs> because if we're not in Christ, our tribulations are most certainly not over. When we die, they most certainly are not. But if you are in Christ, they most certainly are. No more trials, no more tribulations, therefore no more tears, which we'll come to in a moment. So that's who they are and where they came from. Third, 
how they appear. Now you'll notice that our direction, sorry, our attention is directed to two things. If you hold on a moment. We're directed to what they carry in their hands, which is a palm branch, and what they wear on their bodies, a white robe. Let's take first what they carry, a palm branch. Now the palm branch is, well was anyway, maybe even still is, associated with joy. Not just amongst the Jewish people, but amongst the Romans too, and as far as I can understand, in other cultures as well. As far as the Bible goes, its first use is at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, for seven days at the Feast of the Tabernacles, every October, the people of God were to build tents for themselves, just um, rudimentary, temporary dwelling places. And they had to live in these booths, as they call them, for seven days every October. They were made of palm branches. And as they came to the Feast of the Tabernacles, they were to carry a palm branch. And Leviticus 23.40 tells us that the festival of tabernacles was a festival of joy. You shall rejoice seven days before the Lord. Some days God set aside for mourning, for fasting. Other days God set aside for joy, for gladness. Interestingly, the Sabbath day, which remains to us under the new covenant, is a day of rejoicing and of gladness because salvation is complete and our Lord has risen. It's strange that the that many parts of the church substitute an Easter day to remember the resurrection. Whereas God says, I've given you a day. I've given you 52 of them every year on which to remember my resurrection. The Sabbath reminds us powerfully that our Lord has risen. He's risen from the grave. He's conquered death. He's victorious in heaven. In him we conquer, we share the victory, and we have a heavenly inheritance. So the theme of the Sabbath is joy. The theme of tabernacles was joy. And the palm branch came to be associated with joy. So much so that they would use it on other occasions as well. Notably the Passover. Uh, you will probably remember that on the day in which the Lord rode on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem to keep the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper, the people welcomed him. These weren't so much Jerusalem's residents as uh, the people really from the north who understood and appreciated who he was. And we're told that they took palm branches and they <coughs> strewed them all over the path on which Christ would be coming on the back of the dock. Mm. That was similar to what Romans used to do as well. Uh, their conquerors would usually be given a white clothing and palm branches would be waved by the people when Roman conquerors conquered. But here there are palm branches in association with Christ the King coming into the holy city, which is, of course, his own. So there, joy, celebration. Hosanna to the Saviour, to the Son of David. Um, 
the one who comes to us in the name of God and who comes us to save. Joy and gladness. That's why Psalm 118 was sang on that occasion. The sound of joy in the dwellings of the godly. The melody of joy and health and the palm branch. So this heavenly multitude have a palm branch because they're full of joy. It's no wonder, as I said earlier, every tear has been wiped from their eye. Like I said, I'll come back to that. But the second aspect of their appearance consists in the white robes that they are given. Now, whiteness always has, still does, I suppose always will, uh, represents purity. It's represented purity, and it still does. Especially the purity of holiness. Now, the robes that these people wear reflect their souls. I mean, <clears throat> that's what clothing tends to do anyway. Any fashion designer will tell you that uh, a piece of clothing is designed to say something about you. For example, we would normally wear to a gathering like this something that reflects our thoughts on what kind of gathering this is. This is a gathering, a formal gathering, for worship on the Lord's Day, so we dress accordingly. If you are going to a casual gathering somewhere else to do something else, you would dress casually. Most of us take some thought as to how we appear. Revelation 19 tells us that the fine white linen with which the saints are clothed in heaven represents their righteous acts. In other words, their clothing shows their soul. A statement is being made as to what they're like inside. Now, their clothing wasn't always white. If we think about that spiritually, their clothing prior to that was dirty and unclean. I mean, we're all sinners. We're all sinners in need of salvation. And there's no way to whiten our clothing unless we take the way that these people took of whitening their clothing. And we're told rather mysteriously in verse 14 that the ones who came out of the tribulation are the ones who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now that's a strange chemistry. Normally if you would wash in red, your garment would be red. But here is a garment that's washed in blood and lo and behold, it comes out white. Their souls are washed in blood. Or blood is applied to their souls. And therefore, they are white. What that's telling us, friend, is that these people are in spotless purity. Perfectly justified before God. And perfectly sanctified. And they're perfectly justified legally. Perfectly sanctified in their souls just because of the blood. The death of Jesus Christ has secured that they are just and acquitted and also that they are clean inwardly and pure. Both of these are here because Revelation 19, the white linen garment, is the righteous acts of the saints. Now we must never, of course, uh, confuse Justification and sanctification. Justification, being made righteous before God, is a once-for-all thing and it happens when you believe. You'll never be more righteous than you are then 
and you'll never be less righteous than you are then. The righteousness of Christ is applied to you once and for all, and that's that. A wonderful thing that is. No one can add to that justification. How could you? No one could diminish it. Sanctification is different. It's ongoing, and it can sometimes rise and fall, or fall as well as rise. But just as you mustn't confuse justification and sanctification, neither can you separate them. Don't ever separate them. Only separate them when you think of how you are made acceptable in God's sight. Then it's important to rest on your justification. But never ever separate them as though they could somehow exist one apart from the other. They can't. They're always together. No one's justified who isn't sanctified. No one's sanctified who isn't justified. Period. And that's why I often say about them what God says of a husband and wife. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And the Christian values both. I mean, the true Christian values both. A person who isn't really a Christian will be obsessed with justification. He's not interested in sanctification. Another kind of person who's not a Christian will be interested in sanctification but not in justification. He's trying to work his way towards God. The true Christian values both. Values both passionately. Their clothes are white because Christ died (coughs) to acquit them and to make them holy. And these people in heaven here, and I hope you'll be with them one day, and I hope I will too, but they spent their lives hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And at last they are filled. And any of us who really has the hope in our own hearts that we will be with them, we'll purify ourselves too, just as he is pure. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. And whoever has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's as though the Christian says, you have justified me. Well, cleanse me, that I might be like you. And their appearance tells us that they are are at last like the Lord. I think it's worth emphasizing, though, that these people washed their own robes. We're not told here what we might expect, that their robes were washed for them and given to them. Here we're told that they actually washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's uh, the detergent agent is the blood. But they are the ones who wash them. That just reminds us that there's nothing passive in all this. Even to be justified, you've got to believe. Who is it that God justifies? Those who have faith. And you can only be justified if you believe. So that's your part in the matter. You've got to lay hold upon Jesus Christ to be justified. And who is it that's holy? The one who works out his own salvation with fear and trembling. Striving to keep the law of perfect holiness that God has revealed in the scriptures. Working it out with fear and with trembling. 
So their appearance with the palm branch and the white robe, that speaks of joy and holiness. But it's also fair to say, I think anyway, that both the palm and the white robe also speak of victory. And that's because the joy associated with the palm is actually a joy that's connected with a particular victory. That was true in connection with the Roman conquerors. When they were clothed in white, sometimes given a white horse, uh, that was because they had conquered, they had overcome an enemy, and they were honoured, and uh, it was recognised as a victory, a conquest. White and victory go together. The Lord Jesus Christ appears in Revelation 19 on a white horse, going out conquering and to conquer. And there I can't help but feel that the whiteness isn't just a statement about the purity of the Lord, but it's also a statement of his victory and of his conquest. And I think the same is true in connection with the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, For many hundreds of years they were to keep this feast every October, remembering how God kept them in the wilderness. Do you remember the 70 palm trees in Elam, where they found the shelter? That God sustained them, kept them, meeting all kinds of enemies, all kinds of difficulties, heat, hunger, thirst, the oppressor, for 40 long years, and at last he took them home. And God says, don't forget it. And don't forget it from the point of view of where you've arrived. You made it. And now that you've arrived in a land with houses that you never built but you took over, a land with vineyards that you never planted but you can enjoy, you shall remember the way that the Lord your God led you all these years and took you home. That's why the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast of joy because God took them on their long spiritual journey and brought them safe to the promised land. And here the same thing is true. The palm tree is weighed, and the clothes are white, because the journey's over. They've made it through all these places I mentioned in the morning, that John Bunyan mentions. The slow of despond, and hill difficulty, and all these places. You've made it, and you have arrived home. Not just holy uh, and pure, Uh, But here you are, victorious and joyful. And that's why um, you'll notice in Revelation that every letter to the seven churches closes with a promise. And the promise is addressed in all seven instances to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the garden. To him who overcomes, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows except the person who receives it. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. Overcomers. That's what every Christian is. There's a fight to be fought. Uh, The thousands of Israel all have a fight to fight in this world. But when God takes them home, they've overcome. It's time for joy, celebration and gladness because they have arrived. So, 
I think it's worthwhile mentioning just before leaving that you'll notice when they overcome these people and they've got their palm and they've got their white robes and even though they wash their robes themselves notice who gets the glory for it in verse 10 because these people have a voice the redeemed in heaven have a voice they're not silent heaven is quite a noisy place there may be rest in it in one way, spiritual rest, but there's plenty of activity in heaven and there's plenty of noise. We're told in verse 10 that this multitude are crying out with a loud voice and saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the source of their cleanliness and their joy. Everything. They source it in God. The angels, uh, who have never sinned themselves, they join in verse 11 with the elders and the four living creatures, the cherubim, fall on their faces before the throne and they worship. And the first word is Amen, which means yes indeed. Even the angels testify that what the church says is true. Yes, this is God's work on your behalf. God took you out of darkness. God brought you into glory. Blessing, therefore, and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving, honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Victory, joy and holiness. Fifth, where is the church? Where are the multitude located? Well, verse 9 tells us that they are... <coughs> Standing before the throne and standing before the Lamb. Standing is the posture of service. Standing before the throne. Here's a multitude that no man can number. All nations, tribes, peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You'll remember that the Lamb himself, that's a name for Christ, that John uses in the Revelation often because he is the sacrificial lamb. You'll remember that the lamb himself is in the midst of the throne. John saw a vision of the throne in chapter 4 and he sees a lamb in the midst. Now this church are before the throne and they are before the lamb. <clears throat> now, <coughs> under the old covenant, uh, nobody could get that close to God. The only exception you could say in a certain way was when God spoke to Moses on the mountain. We're told that he spoke face to face. Uh, we'll look at that some other time. But generally speaking, the worshippers couldn't come near to the presence of God. You'll, you'll remember that the presence of God was localized in the most holy place, inside first the tabernacle and then the temple. The only person who could enter in there was the high priest once a year and there he was before the ark which is God's earthly throne just once a year one day on the day of atonement the rest of the time the priests were in the holy place not the most holy place but the holy place the worshippers were in the outer court where the bronze altar was so nobody is before the throne but here lo and behold the whole church is before the throne not just the cherubim who are God's throne attendants and throne bearers, but the whole church is before the throne. 
Mysteriously, you have a multitude, as far as the eye can see, north, south, east and west, who are somehow before the throne of God and of the Lamb. The whole city has become a temple, and all the Lord's people have become priests. And I can't help but think, and again I'm just suggesting this really, but I can't help but think that this is also related to the white garment that they wear, because the garment is a robe, and the robe itself makes us think of a priestly garment. Now, I admit it's not called a, a linen robe here, but interestingly in Revelation 19, where we're told about what the righteous wear in heaven, we're told that they wear white linen robes, which are the righteous acts of the saints. And if these robes are linen, it makes us think of them as priests um, who wore these linen robes. So they are in the presence of God, serving God as priests. And they are never far from the throne of God. Now that leads us, last of all, to ask, what is it that they do? What do they do? Well, I mentioned a minute ago that they stand. That's a position of service. We're told that they stand night and day in the temple. Night and day in the temple. Um, you would say at one level that's an exhausting service. But there's no exhaustion in heaven at all. None at all. But there is a strange thing here. You'll remember in Revelation 21 that we're told that there is no temple in the New Jerusalem. And what's more, we're told that there's no night there. So how come these people are day and night in the temple? And how come they're in the temple at all, if there is no temple? Well, the explanation for that is actually more simple and straightforward than we would realise the later description in Revelation 21 is more literal, literal and real. It is an actual description of what the New Jerusalem is like. This one is seeing it through an Old Testament lens, where people are still living in a temple, around a temple in Jerusalem. So John is using that language to give us an understanding of what's going on in heaven. And in that way, he says, by saying they serve day and night, he's using his own experience of the temple and their experience of the temple to say that they're there all the time. Day and night is just a shorthand way of saying they're there all the time. The fact of the matter is that there is no night. Once the new Jerusalem is finished and once it comes down on the new heaven and new earth, there's no day and night. But here we're led to think of praise continually. We sang Psalm 134, uh, which is just a little reminder, and God is, if I can use the expression, so thoughtful and so considerate in these ways that there's a little psalm there to remind us of those who had their duty, the nighttime duty in the temple. Nothing in the temple really stopped. The flame burned all the time, and the praise was going on all the time. There were nighttime duties, and... Um, we're told to remember those who raised their hands and who praised God through the night. Uh, a ceaseless service in the temple. 
Well, that's transferred up here, where there is really no night, but the constancy remains. There is a constant praise of God in glory. And even those who are going about doing whatever it is they do in heaven, do not cease with this preoccupation of praising God night and day, because their hearts are so full of it. Uh, We find it, sometimes we find it a little easier to think of what that's like. Most of you will have been at various points in gatherings or in services of worship where, where you're suddenly seized. And the Holy Spirit takes hold of you, and not just yourself but of others too, and you feel yourself transported. And there is a strange kind of way in which there and then you say, well, I could sing here all night. I could praise God here all night. I could listen to these prayers all night. There are other times, of course, when it's not like that. But that's not the point. The point is that there are times when it's like that. And when times like that come, you just realize what it would be like for your soul to be filled and to be liberated and to be full of the praise and the glory of God all day and all night, even when there is no night. In other words, all the day long and forevermore. That's what John means. And when Revelation 21 tells us that, it, that there is no temple, that's not inconsistent with this. Because what you have there is just John's way of saying, look, um, this temple that we see just now, which speaks of the presence of God, which certain people can access, he says it's gone. Because, not because the temple has disappeared as such, but because the whole place is a temple. There's no need for a temple. Why? Because the glory of God and the Lamb illuminates the place. I mean, who needs a temple when the presence of God is so visible, so manifest, so glorious and so powerful that you're in it, you're in the temple. The whole earth is a temple. The whole of heaven is a temple because the glory of God is revealed in a way in which was never revealed before and in a way it's all to do with the light it's not just that the day is there all the time but the day has an interesting source it's not the sun or the moon we're told that there's no need of the sun and the moon it's always day no sun how can it be always day with no sun well because the light source is different The glory of God and of the Lamb illuminates the whole of the new Jerusalem. Now, I see you just now because of light. You see me because of light. The light has its own qualities. If you put it through a spectrum, it's multicolored. The light that emanates from the Father and the Son is different. It's a light that communicates themselves and uh, the knowledge of themselves. In other words, the the very presence and knowledge of God just suffuses everything. It doesn't matter where you would be in the new heavens or in the new earth, you're in the presence of God because it's all around you. It's the light that you see. Uh, We see everything in the light. There we see everything by that same light. We see the light itself and we're conscious of it. And in that purest light of thine, we clearly light shall see. I shall see your soul and understand your life and experience and you will see mine. Everything is so much more plain. 
we will see God in the purest light of God. We will see Christ in that purest light of Christ. We will see one another in that purest light of his. In that purest light of thine, we clearly light shall see. You want light on yourself. You want light on Christ. You want light on each other. Well, it's all there. It's all there in him. And they stand to serve and to worship. Um, If you ask, what is it that we do in the new heaven and the new earth? It doesn't matter really if I have some ideas on that. It doesn't really matter. In a way, we don't need to know. Um, We'll find out when we get there. There's plenty to do. And we'll do it cheerfully and gladly, not like we do many things in this life. But before we close, just for a few minutes, and really what I said before comes in here because this, in a way, is uh, the best part of it all. Before we close, the emphasis suddenly switches from what they do in glory, or what we do in glory, to what was done for them. All of a sudden, we're told in verse 16 concerning this people that they will neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore the sun shall not strike them nor any heat because the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them it's a strange figure that a lamb that shepherds and he will lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes a true king which is what Christ is, is concerned to shepherd his people. That's what the ancient office of kingship signifies. That's the idea of the scepter. The king's scepter is modelled on a shepherd's staff because kingship was modelled on shepherding. Um, That's why there's a mace on the um, parliament, which is the queen, or was the queen's, now the king's mace, a symbol of his authority, but the kingly authority was always a shepherd's authority. And the king's duty is just twofold. It always was the duty of government to protect, to provide. To protect and to provide. And that's what our king does for us. That's what he does for them in heaven. You'll you'll notice that the provision doesn't stop in heaven. Far from it. In Psalm 78, we're told of the provision that he made for his church upon the earth, especially when he called David. Now David here <coughs> uh, typifies Christ. He's a type of Christ. Um, we're told that he made a choice of David to be his servant. He took him from the folds of sheep. From waiting on the ewes with young, he brought him forth to feed Israel his inheritance, his people Jacob's seed. And so, after the integrity of his heart, he them fed, and by the good skill of his hands, them wisely governed. David, a shepherd, became a shepherd king. And of course, the shepherd king is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. And on this occasion, the the lamb in the midst of the throne shepherds them, Not to the still waters of Psalm 23, but interestingly to the living waters. And we're told to fountains of living waters. 
Now that's really a picture of the grace of God um, and the life that comes from God himself, the spiritual life, the grace that comes from him to help us, to enliven us, to nourish us, to teach us, uh, to comfort us, just everything that God has to give. This is the river in Psalm 46 that flowed through the holy city of Jerusalem. It's the river that's always come into the temple. It's come into the churches through the Bible, through prayer, through the singing of psalms. It is the spiritual life that God imparts to all who believe in him. But in Revelation 22 we're told that this river proceeds from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's the source of the river. You can trace it through the church. Uh, you can trace it in the means of grace where you find life. But if you want to know its source, it's the throne of God and the Lamb. And that's where he leads us. In other words, really the picture that you have here is the picture of Christ uh, providing for our souls after they've been opened and expanded and purified and he just takes us straight to the heart of God. Straight to the heart of God. Straight to what Paul calls the deep things of God and the wonderful things and the glorious things of God. There's a, a direct communication and the shepherd takes us there according to our various capacities and our various needs. And just as there's no end to God, there is no end really as to what God has to give you. To each of us, a cup and a pitcher according to our need. He shepherds us to the fountains of the living water. The cause of life, the fountain pure, remains alone with thee, and in that purest light of thine we clearly light shall see. Knowledge and experiential blessing. What more can a person need? You've got a heart and a head, you'll both be full in glory. And that is a wonderful thing. To study God's grace to angels, to sinners, to others, to yourself. And second and last, as well as providing for you, uh, this shepherd king protects you. You know, when the exiles came back uh, from Babylon, we're told that when they came back, there was a special protection on them. Um, they were exposed in many ways to attack and to difficulty. But we're told in Isaiah that as they walk back from Babylon to the Promised Land, which they had to rebuild, Temple, Jerusalem, everything, we're told that when they feed along the roads, they will neither hunger nor thirst. The heat nor the sun will not strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them, and he will guide them by springs of water, and I will make my mountains, obstacles, a roadway, and my highways shall be elevated. Special protection. No one was allowed to come near them. The same was true of uh, the people of God in the Promised Land. In Abraham's day, no one was allowed to touch them. Touch not my anointed, do my prophets no harm. Uh, you'll remember when they came through the wilderness too, there was a special protection. Their clothes didn't wear out. Remember that? Their Sandals didn't wear out. Now here we're led to the same kind of idea in glory, except it's to the power ten. There's no 
hunger and thirst whatsoever, except the hunger of ordinary appetite. That never ceases. Um, the hunger of uh, the knowledge of God, and uh, of course there's the fruit of the tree of life and so on. The point is that you're not upset by hunger and thirst. You're never looking for what will never feed you. You're never struggling for water that will never satisfy you. God gives there an appetite that he has graciously come down to meet. Pleasant hunger. We all know the difference between painful hunger and pleasant hunger. Well, it's back to Eden and the pleasant hunger of Adam. No heat. Heat always represents, and the ferocity of the sun represents oppression and persecution. In glory there's nothing to cloud your horizon, there's nothing to oppress your mind, uh, there's no oppression from within, no oppression from without, there's not even the sense that the serpent could slither his way back in and somehow cause the whole thing to fall apart. It's gone. Regret, gone. Fears, gone. All that is negative, as Isaiah said, sorrow and sighing have fled away and everlasting joy upon our heads. What a wonderful thought all that is. And uh, last but not least, we're told <coughs> that um, the tribulations, of course, have gone, and they've gone in such a way that... Um, God wipes away every tear from their eyes. When we look on our lives, and we even look back on them as Christians, and if you're anything like me, you, you say, well, I didn't do what I thought I would. I haven't done what I think I could. I've done things I ought not to have done. And there's all kinds of pains and things of that kind. And you look back at trials, and maybe you did this, did that or you said this and you said that and there are tears in that connection that come even with a sense that you failed God and that, that you did, did you just have not been the Christian do you feel that you have not been the Christian that you hoped you would have been well even these tears I mean God stoops down takes on the role of both a father and a mother because both these roles are inside God who is always to refer to us as father because that's who he uh, calls us to refer to him but he fulfills both these roles and here he tenderly wipes away every tear from the eye there's a gentleness in that there's a kindness in that there's a mercy, there's a, an intimacy there's a closeness I mean, it's, that's true of every individual there every individual there, whatever the tears were, he just wipes them, as the Greek says, out of the eye altogether. That's a gathering, friends, uh, that's well worth going to. It's a gathering that's well worth being a part of. And uh, there is nothing the world can present to you uh, that holds out what that gathering holds out for. The only question for you tonight is, will you be in it or not? That's it. Uh, in chapter 6, we saw in the morning the gathering of the unbelievers who are just facing the judgment of Almighty God. Here you have the polar opposite. Um, how can you be there? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Christ and you shall be saved. Let us pray. O eternal God, we are thankful that the things of which we speak and think are things that far exceed in glory anything that we are able to comprehend or to say. And uh, as it was true of the Queen of Sheba when she met Solomon, and she said that half his glory had not been declared, how true that is concerning the fullness and blessing of heaven. O Lord, may we be of that number and grant that our heart's desire would be to be with Christ and his people in the never-ending bliss of eternal glory. Bless to us our meditation upon the truth, our singing of your praise, and our meetings for worship. In the precious name of Christ, O Lord. Amen. Uh, we can close by singing the great shepherd psalm, Psalm 23. <clears throat> we know the psalm well, at least I hope we do, or most of us do. It tells us of the Lord, our shepherd, who makes sure that we have no lack, leading us to green pastures, and to quiet still waters. And the psalm closes with the assurance that this goodness and mercy of God shall follow us all our lives, and in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. Let's stand and sing the whole psalm to the praise of God. The Lord's my
with the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.